0: You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey, formerly Bulletproof, Bulletproof Radio. A state of high performance. I've reached into the thousand legacy episodes of the podcast to bring you this incredible conversation because it's changed so many lives. You're going to get a lot of value from the ideas in this episode. And if you're hearing it for the second time, you're going to get more than you did the first time. And frankly, a lot of people don't hear every episode. This is one of the greats. Stay connected with the podcast and with me on Instagram or Facebook. The handle is at the human upgrade podcast. Thank you. Will you indulge me for a second and imagine who you would be if you actually had more energy, if your brain fired faster and you could measure it, and you had a calmer nervous system that worked better? That's what this show, that's what my work is all about. You can be that person with a few fixes that really work. In my brand new book, Smarter Not Harder, I will teach you about the little things that make the biggest difference in your life so you can be that person. There's a new anti-nutrient that you haven't heard about yet that is weakening everything you do from your workouts to your meditations. You can remove it from your diet and you'll notice a shift quickly. Learn how to get the right amount of exercise for you in the very least amount of time, and it's way less than you think. Smarter Not Harder is about simplicity and efficiency so you have more time to work on the things that matter to you. You can use the time to work on yourself or to help other people, but it's time that's yours that you're not using effectively right now. If you want to get your energy back like I did, you want to manage the stress so you can handle anything, maybe even drop the weight, check out Smarter Not Harder wherever you buy books. This is stuff you haven't seen anywhere else. Smarter Not Harder. Thank you for your support. Today's episode is recorded live at True Foods Kitchen with Dr. Andrew Weil. Hi, Dave. You might hear some kitchen noise and all. That's because we're actually, we just enjoyed an amazing meal here and uh, just had a chance to talk. Well, if you have lived under a rock for the past 30 years, you probably don't know uh, Dr. Weil. He's uh, been a, for decades, a leading voice in alternative and uh, functional medicine uh, using foods as um, herbs. And I got to say, starting sometime in my early 20s, I became a subscriber um, to your newsletter, uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> is, which is incredible. So to sit here with you is, is a real honor. Thank you. <clears throat> I, I'd like to understand, uh, when you were a young man uh, figuring out the, the medical side of things, you got into this way ahead of the curve.
1: Why? Well, I think I came into the world this way. You know, I was intensely curious as a kid. I was always, I, I was very interested in plants. Uh, and that eventually led me to be a botany major at Harvard as an undergraduate. Um, and that started me on a career interest in medicinal plants. So that was before I went to medical school. Uh, I also, as far back as I can remember, was interested in the mind and how the mind affected the body. Um, that eventually led me to take a course in medical hypnosis, which was one of the best courses I ever took. And I am um, absolutely convinced that the mind and body are one thing. They're not separable. And that one of the uh, greatest limitations of modern medicine is that it sees the mind and body as separate. And if it recognizes the mind at all, it doesn't admit that it can influence the body.
0: I've often looked back at, at how we got these attitudes. And we have the National Institutes of Health and we actually set up our national research around mind versus body. And so studying them together almost requires you to get two grants from two different opposing bodies. And it, is, is that why we have such a weird divide
1: in the West? Well, I mean, you could say it goes back to Descartes. Okay. Uh, but I think the, the fact is that our science and our medicine are completely dominated by a materialistic paradigm uh, that says that all that is real is that which is physical, which can be touched and measured, and that if you observe a change in a physical system, the cause has to be physical. Uh, non-physical causation of physical events is not allowed for in the materialistic scientific paradigm. And that's why we can't make sense of placebo Responses and why hypnosis is not taken seriously in medicine, and uh, why it strikes people as outlandish that your attitudes about aging could influence the way that you age. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was hoping you'd tie
1: it back to that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it, it's really funny though. I I feel like lately the data is coming out more and more. Like we can measure exactly what the percentage of the placebo effect is, mm-hmm. and. When you stare at the, the totality of the data, you just have to say, there's something going on that we don't know about, but maybe
1: but we're still, starting to get it. still, it's like the, our attitudes toward it are so wrong-headed. The, the two commonest uh, ways that I hear the word placebo used in medicine are, how do you know that's not just a placebo effect? And the most interesting word in that sentence is just, Yeah. or we have to rule out the placebo effect. We should be ruling it in. That's what you want to happen. <laughs> you know, that's pure healing from within. And the goal of good medicine should be to elicit the maximum healing response with the minimum intervention. And I think
0: about what would happen if you were allowed
1: to say what some plant ingredients at True Food's Kitchen actually did for people on the menu. Do you think that would have
0: a placebo effect?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I am a, a great fan of placebo medicine. You know, yeah. And I think the... The best thing you can do as a physician is to present a treatment to a patient with your full belief that this is an effective treatment. And patients' beliefs follow physicians' beliefs. And to get the, you know, so this is why I teach it as best to get the maximum healing response with the least intervention. So you start with the, the gentlest intervention possible as demanded by the circumstances of, of illness. And you can work up from there.
0: You've written 14 books on uh, various aspects of this. You're into mind and body. Where do people start? Do you start with food or do you start with meditation?
1: No, actually, I start with trying to convince people that the human organism has incredible potential to heal itself. So you start with mindset before either one. But this is not just mindset. It's also the physical reality that our bodies have... An array of mechanisms to maintain equilibrium, to maintain balance and to regenerate tissue, to adapt to injury and loss. And most people I meet do not have great confidence in their own body's healing powers. Mm. So that's where I start from. And a lot of okay. what I've written has been trying to convince people. Um, you know, the, the, one of the books that I wrote was spontaneous healing. And that's, it's a, just about that. If you look at the whole spectrum of illness, most diseases end by themselves. And they end because the body is able to take care of them. There's a famous uh, adage in medicine. It might be Maimonides who said that. I don't remember who it's attributed to. That the business of the physician is to distract the patient until time heals the problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't heard that. And it it makes sense because you do get better. But then again, I look back to when I was 300 pounds and I had... A lot of chronic illnesses I had more estrogen and less testosterone than my mom <laughs> and uh, my thyroid levels were very very low uh, and i was I, I was really feeling it and no no matter what I did it this, it, this I went to a dozen doctors and and I was kind of stuck at, at the accelerator all the way to the floor I'm pushing harder, but there's no more room for it to go, and I wasn't getting better and, and I feel like Maybe because of that experience, I, I see a lot of people who are in that.
1: My, I, I've something's happened. Yeah. My body isn't getting better. What's going on in, in those? Well, I think that when when I sit with a patient who is stuck, uh, what I what's going through my mind is why is healing blocked here? You know, since mm-hmm. healing is the rule rather than the exception, what is blocking it? What can I do from outside that might identify and remove obstacles to healing? Is there a way to supply? more energy to the body's healing mechanisms. You know, what can I do from outside? But I think it's very important to recognize that healing comes from within. Treatment is something done from outside. Right. Optimally, treatment can elicit healing, but I think that's commonly confused. The example that I often use is if you have a patient Uh, critically ill with bacterial pneumonia and you put them in the hospital and give them intravenous antibiotics. 72 hours later, they're out of danger. It's very easy to think that the antibiotics caused the cure. But that's, I think that the better way, more useful way to interpret that is that what antibiotics do in that circumstance is reduce levels of bacteria down to the point where the immune system can take over and finish a job that it couldn't do because it was overwhelmed. And to me, that's a model of the relationship between treatment and healing. That's a beautiful way of thinking about it. It it feels like
0: the things that held back my healing the most and just the skepticism that that I faced oh. came from this mindset that said, that can't
1: be or that can't happen, therefore it didn't. Okay, so... I have heard many of patients that I've dealt with over the years have come back to me and said that the most important thing that I did for them was that I was the only doctor they saw who told them they could get better. (laughs) Now that in one way that makes me very sad, but but on the other hand, you know, I I believe that. I mean, sometimes I'll say to a patient, I know you can get better. I don't know how you can get better. I I will give you things to try. I can send you to people to work with, but I know it is possible for you to get better. Now, you mentioned the National Institute of Health. Yeah. Uh, I wrote in one of my books that that's really misnamed. If you look at the names of the institutes that make it up, where is the Institute of Health and Healing? It's really the (laughs) National Institutes of Diseases and Body Parts. You (laughs) know, there is no National Institute of Health. Yeah. There should be. And what I would do, you know, I think one of the main jobs of that institute would be to compile a National Registry of Remission so that if you were diagnosed with a disease or have a problem like yours, you call them up and they can put you in touch with someone in your area who had what you have and is now better. Yeah. That would be a very powerful oh, message wow. that could overrule all of those negative expectations that you have. I, I was
0: just on the phone uh, two days ago with a, a referral from a friend who is a uh, a powerful executive, a former powerful executive at a big company, um, almost 40 years old and had to retire because of toxic mold poisoning. And the conversation was, I feel like there's no hope. I can't possibly get better. And and I'm looking at this going, look, my levels of all the mycotoxins in my blood were worse than yours. And, and I was way more trash than you are. Uh, and I just decided, look, I'm totally okay to die trying. I bought disability insurance right. when I was 26. Like either I'm going to hack it or I'm I'm <laughs> going to go out fighting because it's it wasn't acceptable. But it it took five times to say you know this is going to take 6 months to a year to get most of your function back. You just have to do the work. Um, but it feels like most of the chronic things the first thing they take away is they take away willpower. Right. Like like the yeah, the, yeah. the yeah, zest yeah. to fight it. Yeah. How do you advise patients when they come in? They're like, "I'm too tired. I can't do it. I can't remember." No, I'll just
1: tell you just well. This is I'll just tell you a story. I was just with. A, um, I have a, a long time friend, a Japanese man, mm-hmm. who had metastatic uh, renal cell cancer. Okay, um, metastases to the lung. Um, his lifestyle was not great, and uh, he was given chemotherapy, but very dire. Uh, predictions and everyone told him how he had to fight this he he is now this is now 40 50 years later he's a p- picture of health and the for him the the single greatest change that he made was a mental change he decided that since he had created his cancer he had to love his cancer and rather than fight it he had to accept it and, <laughs> and love it and this was his key to uh to to Getting back to health and healing.
0: I absolutely am so impressed uh, that that you said it. When you fight something, you give it energy. Exactly, and exactly. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, is from Mother Teresa. And sometime uh-huh. in the seventies, uh, someone came up to her and said, will you, "Will you come to our rally against the war?" And she said, "Absolutely not." <laughs> and he said, what do, you, "What do you mean?" And she says, "I'll come to rally for peace, but if we go to fight the war, the war is just going to get stronger." So
1: I think this is a that's a, this is a really important <laughs> philosophical point that many people don't get. It, it, it's you know there are so many examples of when of where when we try to fight something or oppose something that we don't like that we end up making it worse. Whether it's using uh, pesticides that have made insects worse, antibiotics that have made bacteria more virulent and dangerous to us, you know, rather than accepting something and learning how to live in balance with it. So someone walks in to your office and they're saying, I have all kinds of stuff wrong
0: with me. I, I feel totally hopeless. Your first thing is going to be, you can heal. Right. And, and your body can do this. And so let's say that they accept, accept this because, well, you're a well-known expert and you're a doctor and you have the white coat power and all of that.
1: Um, what, I have various tricks and methods that I use, but it's very much individualized, depending okay. on my intuitive reading of that person. There are a few people who've come to me and told these horrific tales of mm-hmm. woe about themselves. And my reaction has been to burst out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't do that with everyone. It's like the selected patients. You know how to but, read them, okay. but it is a way of like you know breaking that mindset or getting them to look at the fact that they can change their take on that.
0: I've been working with a company called OmniBiotic, who made a targeted probiotic with unique powder delivery mechanisms that make sure you get a high probiotic survival rate in your intestines. Because who wants to take a probiotic that never even starts growing in the body? I've noticed a real difference after taking Omnibiotic for a few months now. My digestion is rock solid, and these strains are designed specifically for detoxification and even for brain function and stress management, and you can feel it. Go to omnibioticlife.com slash Dave, use code Dave20 for 20% off. That's omnibioticlife.com slash Dave, use code Dave20 and you can get specific strains that do specific things that change how you feel. One of the best things you can do to upgrade your sleep is to sleep on something that's not toxic. So let me tell you about Essentia's Beyond Latex Organic Foam technology. It works really well for your posture, it's allergy-friendly, and it eliminates all of the stimulants that you can actually breathe in from normal mattresses that can interrupt your sleep. What you get is an incredibly comfortable mattress that's dialed in for your biology, and it's good for your health, and it's good for the environment. Learn more at myessentio.com slash daveasprey and get a hundred dollars off your mattress with code Dave. That's myessentio.com slash Daveasprey.
1: Use code Dave and save a hundred bucks. You know, breaking that mindset or getting them to look at the fact that they can change their take on that. If I have if I can, I will introduce someone to someone who's had their condition and as well. Okay. But I can't always do this. this is why I'd like to see a national compilation of people that would make it easier to do that. There's a, a website, I think 23andMe about
0: them, um, and uh, Alexandra started It's called Patients Like Me. Uh-huh. This was Great. specifically for people to find others Great. who were doing this. And it's weird, though, when you get things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and things yeah. where it's such, or Lyme disease, where it's such a fuzzy, people don't know if they have it, they don't think it's real. But even then, you get a group of those people in a room, and... They get the social community, right? Um, and as I have gone through your work over the years, I mean, you you talk about these five things. You say food, movement, stress, social connection, and spiritual well being yeah. is is the the palette right. you're playing with. Yeah. Did I miss anything in that? Well, breathing. Oh, okay. And I place a great deal of that. emphasis okay. on that. Yeah.
1: Okay. You know, with uh, in uh, the book that I wrote on aging, healthy aging. Yep. When I wrote that, I made several trips to Okinawa to look at the phenomenon of healthy aging there, which right. is they had the highest Concentration of centenarians. And when I was, as soon as I got there, obviously you can't attribute healthy aging to any one thing because yeah. everything's different. You know, it's a tropical Pacific paradise, clean air, clean water. Uh, people are very physically active. The diet, incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the most interesting diets I've ever seen with the variety of sea vegetables, land vegetables, fish. But it was so striking the that old people there seemed happy and had a glow about them that I don't see among old people here and i and to me the greatest difference that struck me as an american was the positive value put on aging over there mm. you know the the old the oldest old people were all living treasures and the communities yeah. made efforts to include them in everything they looked old they were you know stooped and wrinkled they didn't use botox uh but they ha- they were happy and they felt part of the community and loved and admired and valued. And that's, I don't see that happen here. I think the, one of the most toxic cultural messages here is that the value of life diminishes with aging, you know, marketers direct everything at a very young demographic. All of entertainment is, you know, for younger and younger people.
0: Haven't they figured out that old people
1: have all the money? <laughs>
0: Good point. <laughs> uh, do you see that changing? Are, are we going to have some transformation in, in the West?
1: Well, I think one hope is that the baby boomers, uh, you know, who are just getting into the ranks of the oldest old, um, have all along proved themselves to be very demanding and getting what they want and getting change. And, you know, maybe they're not going to settle for the models of aging that have been offered to people up to now. In your,
0: your hierarchy there, in your list of things uh, where I didn't include breathing, um, where we had, you know, food yeah. versus breathing, clearly you can go a few minutes without a breath and you're, you're in trouble. right? How much time do you spend every day doing intentional focused breathing exercises?
1: Well, in terms of clock time, I don't know. It may not be that much. It may add up to something like maybe 30 minutes okay. in the course of a day. Of if- focused breathing. Yeah, but I do it. I do some in the morning when I get up. I do in the evening when I fall asleep. I do some at various times during the day. Um, What's your best book on breathing? I actually I have this in all of my books. Okay. I, when the I I say try healthy aging as okay as a good one, or one in, uh, one called uh, health and healing is another. And on my website drwild.com there's a whole you can find videos. Yeah, you have a lot of videos about breathing. Okay. And, you know, I think I'm one of, I'm unusual in being a doctor that places emphasis on breathing. I, I learned a lot of this stuff, well, some from studying yoga, but, uh, from a couple of old osteopathic physicians. Really? You know, old time DOs, one of whom in particular was my, one of my mentors, Dr. Robert Fulford. I met him when he was in his eighties. He was a great model of healthy aging and placed How to How old bri- were you when you met him? I uh, must have been in my forties. There you go, twice your age. See? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. And uh, you know, I once asked him what was the secret of his health and vitality, and he didn't answer in words. He just took an enormous breath, and I'd never seen anyone's chest expand so fully. Wow! Uh, and uh, he he really believed that breathing was the most essential function of the human organism and that doing it properly was the key to good health. So it it is amazing to me how little research has been done on breathing because people don't take it seriously. You know, how could anything so simple cause such changes? But I think learning how to breathe and practicing breathing techniques is, it's free, it doesn't use any devices, and it's incredibly time and cost efficient. Well, now that you've said that, I'm sure someone out there is making a little vibrating thing for your belly button as a result of that comment.
0: Uh, uh, you know, making fun of my quantified self friends there. Um, I did, when I was an engineer, I, I did five years of art of living, breathing exercises. Mm-hmm. Every morning I'd wake up and spend a half hour, uh-huh. you know, hands in different positions. And to this day, uh, when I go work with a you know, a Qigong master or a, a Chinese medicine or a pranayama yoga teacher, they always say, oh, like, you know how to breathe. And I don't, on an everyday basis, do breathing exercises, although I recognize mm-hmm. it would be a good move. Uh, I don't I have kids, they disrupt my morning right. routine. But uh, I, I do believe that that just repeatedly doing it, it changed my, my nervous system. So yes. my body just knows how to do it. What is the minimum
1: amount of time that a, the average listener would have to do structured breathing exercises for,
0: for their lungs to just
1: learn. There's, uh, you know, I think it's the, it's the regularity of doing it rather okay. than any amount of time because you're putting a signal into your nervous system and over time, over weeks or months of doing that, you actually change the tone of the autonomic nervous system and that's okay. what you are going to do. So the the simplest technique that I teach this four, seven, eight breath, okay. um, You know, it really takes 30 seconds to do it, but you've got to do it religiously. Four, seven, eight. Walk me through that right now. It's you breathe in through your nose quietly to a count of four, hold your breath for a count of seven, blow air out forcibly through your mouth to a count of eight. And when you're learning this, you do it for a total of four breath cycles, which takes 30 seconds. And you do it at least twice a day. Do you hold empty at all? No. Uh, No, you hold on the inhale. Okay, just on the inhale. Right. I remember I did my
0: first yoga class where they so I breathe out now hold your breath empty and man the first time I did that I immediate panic response which makes no sense because you realize right. you know, I can do ten twenty seconds when my lungs empty now uh, because the panic response is gone you realize know, oh, air is going to come in a while but that took me a, a while maybe I was more sympathetic dominant than average mm-hmm. uh, do you recommend that that lung empty
1: at all there's you know in pranayama there are hundreds and hundreds of variations of breathing techniques um and i you what's fine to experiment with them this this one this four seven eight breath that i've worked with for a long time is the one that i found to be most time efficient i told you that i have a very low heart rate and i can only attribute that to doing that breathing technique and your heart rate's in the 40s low 40s sometimes high 30s okay and i think that's from high vagal tone
0: and you don't you don't exercise all
1: the time. I'm like I mean, I, I physically active every day. I try to swim every day. I have dogs that take me for walks. Uh, but other than, other yeah, than now that, Spartan no. You're
0: Spartan racing and running triathlons? N- no, no. Okay.
1: No. no, and it really annoys the hell out of some of my exercise fanatic friends that I have a low heart rate that, that, that like that, and I don't do that kind of exercise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's just the, the benefits of breathing. But when you have a high vagal tone, though, that also can be a problem. You can pass
1: out when you have high I never, tone. I'm not lightheaded. I don't pass out. And okay. I think I can mount an adequate sympathetic response when needed. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. So so your
0: uh, your nervous system works really well. Yeah. Do you measure things like heart rate variability?
1: Uh, I EEGs? don't. I'm interested in all that. No, I don't. Okay. I, you know, I can tell. I have nice warm hands most of the time. Okay. And that's, you know, a part of the relaxation response. So, so things are working pretty well for yeah. you. Yeah. What has shifted? I, I mean I, I remember
0: here's an example. Um this is one of your older books. Uh and you wrote about mangoes. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yes, you know it the does book indeed. I'm talking yeah. about?
1: It's called okay. The Marriage of the Sun and Moon. Yeah. Tell me the story about mangoes. Well, that was the second book I wrote, and it was about uh adventures I had yeah. during a period of about three and a half years when I traveled a lot, mostly in uh in South America and Central America. And uh I talked about perfectly ripe mangoes causing altered, an altered state of consciousness. (laughs) You know, we often don't get really perfectly ripe mangoes up here, but if you're in a tropical area where they grow and you're eating one, I mean, you, that's all, that's all, everything disappears except for the the mango. (laughs) And it's the texture and the flavor. And, and there are, I, I think I quoted in there, um, uh, descriptions of Indians in Bombay mm-hmm. during mango season, lying on the ground, you know, with mango juice <laughs> dripping into their mouths, with their eyes glazed. Uh, you know, it is a total in- enveloping experience. Now, at dinner, uh, you were talking about glycemic index. Yes.
0: Uh, however, and mango tends to be really high <laughs> on the glycemic index. I mean, have you have you shifted your view, uh, or, or even more better phrased? How have you shifted your view over time from where you started out with these
1: travels around the world uh, to where you've ended up now? Like, what what's up and what's down? Well, specifically, let's take sugar specifically. Yeah. Uh, you know, sugarcane is native to Asia and and uh, in in India. In many places, uh, there are vendors on streets that have big carts full of freshly cut sugarcane stalks, mm-hmm. and they have a sort of wheel press that's hand operated, and you can have a freshly squeezed glass of sugarcane juice, which they squeeze lime into. Oh, wow. And it is absolutely delicious. And it's, uh, you know, it's not overly sweet, and it's got this sort of, you know, back taste. that's the molasses-y element, mm-hmm. which is not particularly pleasant. So it's a mixture of the yeah. sweet and unpleasant. But I think taking sugar in that form is just fine. And, you know, for Indians, it is a kind of sacred plant. Yeah. it's a very special thing. I think when you uh, boil that juice down and concentrate the stuff and then put it in large quantities and eat every day, that's probably going to cause havoc. Uh, I grew up, Pretty much addicted to Coca Cola and soda, so, you know, in my teenage years, and and I mean, I can't imagine doing that now. It tastes repulsive to me. Uh, but I was very unconscious about that, and I think drinking uh, sweetened liquids like that all the time is n- really not a good thing for you. But I think um, uh, natural, naturally sweet things in moderation are okay, and probably tropical fruit if you're in the tropics and it's yeah. in season. I think it's probably okay. And if you look, you know, up in the, in temperate regions, fruit ripened in the fall just before the winter. And it was appropriate to store up caloric energy I as fat at that time of year to get you through the lean, the lean period. So I think, you know, the difficulty is now we have that available to us all the time and in great quantity. I went to Hawaii for a month last year, said,
0: well, I already live on an island, Vancouver Island. I'm just going to (laughs) live on a different island with sunshine in the middle of winter for a month. And I said, so I'm going to eat the tropical fruit that's in season. And I gained 2% body fat in a month eating tropical fruit, uh, which wasn't my intent, but it was delicious. And I don't really regret it that much. Uh, Yeah, I I think that's okay.
1: And you can lose it afterwards. Yeah, I did.
0: Right. The other thing that you wrote about in your book, that actually really shifted something for me, this is in, in the same book, mm-hmm. uh, was you talk about going mushroom picking, mm-hmm. right? And and you had this vivid description of how when you're in the right mindset, you'll just find mushrooms. Well,
1: I first of all talked about, uh, about finding four-leaf clovers. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I met a woman once who was, her thing was she would bet you that, you know, she'd bet you a dollar or five dollars that from the time you said go if you were in an outdoor area yeah. within a minute she could find a four-leaf clover wow. and she always won <laughs> and uh, so you know thinking about this it made me realize the four-leaf clovers are always there you know they're rare the problem is being able to see them and that's a pretty complicated one because the 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 visual pattern but i think the there's two aspects to seeing there's what goes into the eye, but then there's whether the brain can recognize the pattern. And if the brain, if you don't have the key in place to recognize the pattern, you can be looking right at something and not see it and not recognize it. So that's the case with four leaf clovers. And I found that I was able, you know, I've developed the power to find four leaf clovers and I could take other people, introduce other people to that experience. So with mushrooms, this was even more striking that when I was, when I was learned, I moved out to Oregon. Uh, and it was the first time I was around lots of people that collected mushrooms, wild mushrooms. And often, when I was trying to learn a new mushroom, I couldn't see them at first. And other people were finding them, and it would drive <laughs> me crazy. You know that you'd be with somebody, and they say, "Oh, there's one, there's one," and putting them in their basket, and I couldn't see a single one. Okay. And then, after a period of time, I'd be able to see it. And even more interesting, some with some of these mushrooms, some of the especially the magic mushrooms that were yep. little. If I was in the physical presence of somebody who was seeing them, I could see them. But if I got too far away from them, I stopped seeing them again. <laughs> now, that's really interesting that somehow there's some shared thing. But I think the, the, the essential point is that you have to have the key in place to be able to recognize the pattern. Well, for- and, which also makes me think that when you hear people tell you about experiences they have that aren't in your experience, whether it's experiences of telepathy or precognition, I'm willing to at least listen to that. And, you know, maybe I don't have the key in place to to recognize that. But I think there's probably a lot more out there than we're aware of. It reminds me of a, of a legend, one that, that's probably
0: historical based, is on one of the, the islands, tropical islands, the first time a, a ship from the West came out. Uh, no one could see the ship because it was unprecedented. Right, right. And then the the local medicine man noticed the waves were all screwed up. So <laughs> he stared at it for a couple hours. And said, "Oh, there's a ship." And once someone developed the ability to see it, then yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone else could like, "Oh, these small things are appearing from something." And they they, they yeah, finally like realized that. what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I I went out in a forest after I read your book. This was years ago when it when it came out, and I grew up. Uh, New Mexico, and there it's like toadstools. Mushrooms are poisonous, right? And, and I had inadvertently been taught a uh, like a, a pretty hostile, negative view towards yes, mushrooms. me too. Uh, and I mean, Paul Stamens was just on the show, who's you know the leading guy in mushrooms. And so I, it took me a long time after I read your book to say, oh, it, I'm not seeing them because uh, I've learned not to see them. And so I taught my kids, "Oh, look, you know, magic, you know, f- you know, forest mushrooms, you know the fairies are sitting on them." So my my kids walk through the forest in our backyard and they're they're finding mushrooms like crazy because they didn't learn not to do it. Uh-huh. Are there other things in your life that you learned not to see that you discovered?
1: <laughs> um well, you know, I, I would generalize that to things like magic. You know, I think okay. there's all sorts of magical stuff out there that, you know, I probably didn't see when I was growing up in a city, you know, that now I look for. And things like synchronicities and, yeah. and all of that, which, uh, which I find fascinating. Do you think that it's possible to, uh, to create serendipity or synchronicities
0: on demand? Are some people better at that than others?
1: Yeah, but I think that, you know, again, I, I think if you start paying attention to them, they're there. Yeah. It's like the (laughs) four clovers. They're there, but you don't recognize them. And especially if, you know, when we say, Oh, it's a coincidence, that's, that's, there's a coincidence is the label on the mental wastebasket that we throw certain experiences into that we say, this has, this is, has no significance. If you start saying that maybe this is a highly significant thing, then they begin happening more frequently and they can guide you in a certain direction.
0: They help your body make more NAD+ Plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Plus. Check out Qualia NAD+ Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com/dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com/dave15 Qualia NAD+. Plus. It's what I use. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. One of the areas where I think we have the, the biggest problem is is just with the quality of our food supply. And people are eating at restaurants uh, a lot. And you and Kimball Musk, who's also been on the show, are, are the two humans, at least in in the US, I think who've done the most to say, let's find a way to make Substantial numbers of restaurants that have real food, or you might call yeah, it true food. food. <laughs> I wonder, wonder you got that that idea, right? Yeah. Uh, do you see a, a change in in demand or change in how people go to restaurants?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you still see a lot of the other stuff out there. Right. People want huge portions of you know really unhealthy stuff. But um, I, I, one of the reasons that I was motivated to start True Food Kitchen was that I get very frustrated eating out because uh, there's yeah. you know I. You know, it's fun to eat out, but there's not many places where I can get food as good as I can make at home and that meets my nutritional requirements. So I wanted to create a place, you know, serve the kind of food that I myself would make or like and turn other people onto that. And I do now see other, you know, I see this being copied um, and yeah. a lot more restaurants offering healthy options. Uh, so I think all well, that's to the good. Why did you insist on – there's one one
0: uh, burger on your menu, and it's grass-fed. Why is grass-fed important? Actually, grass-finished
1: is more important than grass-fed.
0: <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> uh, walk, walk me through that
1: well you know when you can say grass fed but then the cows are taken to finishing lots where they're fattened up on grain it gives them some diabetes right exactly right, right. so one of the reasons for uh, grass finished meat if you're going to eat it is that the fatty acid composition is much better okay. uh so you know that's one reason um the other thing is that cows are not Evolved to digest grain, yeah. and so if they're on grain diets, uh, you have it wreaks havoc with their digestive system. And this is one reason why they have to be given antibiotics, uh, and that creates a whole other series of problems. I, I know that the sheep on my farm that eat grass—they've never had antibiotics because they don't
0: need them. There right. isn't a point to it. Right.
1: And, and to, you know, feeding cows grains—that's bad enough. But how about feeding them other cows or sheep, and that's yeah. what produced you know. These, uh, they right. cow disease that yeah. would break out. What do you think
0: about uh, vegetarian versus vegan versus uh, grass-fed omnivore versus you know? Give me well. The stink? I think
1: I think human beings are omnivores, and and uh when I was in I most recently in Okinawa, which was earlier this year, I went out to this famous village called Ogimi Village, which is the longevity village that you know advertised that has all these centenarians, and uh, I sat around with a room full of very old happy looking okinawans and they were all asked about you know what's the secret of their longevity everyone the first words they said were eat everything very interesting now they have a lot of great food available yeah, to that helps. there's also growing numbers of, of fast food restaurants and i don't think they meant that when they said <laughs> eat everything uh and okinawan longevity has actually plummeted in the past few years as a result of fast increasing consumption of fast oh. food mcdonald's especially um so, I think first of all, we're omnivores, and I don't tell, I'm personally a uh, pescatarian okay. or a vegetarian, if you want to call it that. I, I'm so a lacto,
0: ovo, beef, porco vegetarian. <laughs> <stuff>.
1: Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't tell people to become vegetarians, but I think it is in, for North Americans, I would say it would it, be useful to reduce the percentage of animal foods in the diet.
0: But the data is really clear on that. And that right. That's a part of my aging book as, as well. It's like, and I would say,
1: particularly meat. beef, because that for the, the planetary and environmental consequences of raising cows for food is pretty bad. Yeah, the way we're doing it, especially with corn and soy and all that oh, land,
0: right. it, it's so inefficient. Right. I I flat out tell people never eat an industrial raised animal again if you yeah. want to live a long time, right. and that'll help the environment dramatically. Right. And and the the data about you know the average American's eating so many pounds of meat. And I don't care if it's chicken or whatever. It's just too much animal protein. Right. Uh, but I think going oh if too much is bad. None is good might be.
1: Yeah, I think that's extreme. And also a game that I like to play is to tell a group of people when I'm teaching a class, you know, name any food and I can give you an argument why you shouldn't eat it. Yeah, that's awesome. And if that were all right, there'd be nothing to eat. Yeah. But really, anything you name, I can give you good, good, sound reasons why you should not eat it. <laughs> well, you know, fruit in general high in sugar, there right? And If you're a, <laughs> a macrobiotics, that you don't want it too yin. Yeah, don't uh, want all that yin <laughs> in your body. <laughs> what do you think of macrobiotics? I think it is a very uh, limited, restricted dietary system that was appropriate for people in Japan. Um, I think it's it's too high in salt. I think you know a diet that tells you never to eat fruit that that's you know if, if fruit is obviously meant to be eaten right that was designed mm-hmm. to be eaten uh I I the people that I've known have been on macrobiotic diets uh, almost always end up binging by doing things like eating an entire <laughs> cheesecake. <laughs> and I think that's what happens when you're on too restricted a diet. Uh, so this yeah. is probably why eat everything is a good idea. Yeah, you, know, eat, okay. you eat everything in moderation, and then you don't have to you know, go on these binging cravings okay. cycles.
0: So that, that gets rid of the Ben and Jerry's bucket at the, exactly, end, of the, right. the end of the kale salad. All right. <laughs> I, I, I got you on that. Yeah. Um, what, as a pescatarian, though, there's two things. There's problems with being pescatarian. Yeah, okay, and the, the two I want to ask you about, the most obvious one is probably mercury and other toxic metals in fish. They accumulate in us as we age. If we want to age well, how do you deal with that personally? Okay, so
1: first of all, the, uh, the form of... Um, of mercury that's in fish is ethyl mercury, yep. which is not that bad for us. It's methyl mercury that's the problem, yep. and we don't really know whether a high mercury levels in the blood of adults has any clinical significance. It's very bad for High fetuses. ethyl mercury no, or high, 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 high mercury. mercury? Yeah. Okay. You know, Whoa, I, I oh, see people. This, this is mind blowing. This, All right. I see people that come and they're freaked out that they've got a high mercury level, and uh, you know they stop eating fish. Blah blah blah. It, it may be that in an adult, a high mercury level really has no clinical significance. It's very bad for fetuses and infants with developing nervous systems. But we really don't know the significance of of mercury in adults. It may not be so bad. And selenium, if you have adequate selenium in your diet or if fish have adequate selenium in their diets, it really neutralizes the, the it, problems with mercury. There is good evidence that selenium it, it helps with it. We also but know that I the think, levels are much higher than they used to be. But clearly you know it is better to eat and it's not just mercury it's pcbs and other things that fish accumulate so you do not want to eat large carnivorous fish or fish that spend a lot of time in coastal waters okay you want to eat you know better to eat small vegetarian fish like sardines for example or uh you know wild albacore tuna that are off you know the bc coast yeah those are good fish So you want to know which which ones are okay and which aren't. The other issue with fish is sustainability. Yeah, and you know there aren't going to be any fish pretty soon. Mm. And um, you know I think you want to really know which species are ones like things like Chilean sea bass that you should never eat because they're you know they're not going to be there anymore. Let's talk salt for a minute. Yeah, since we're on on the ocean, Uh, you mentioned
0: uh, you know people getting too much salt on on certain diets. Uh, How much?
1: Like, what's your take on salt? Complicated issue. Yeah, you know, very divided uh, data there. Personally, I think that uh, I think we've made people too afraid of salt. Yeah, I, I think some people are salt sensitive, and it's you know, true. and they eat anything salted and their fingers swell. I mean, mm-hmm. you know and probably affects their blood pressure. For most people, it may not be that much of an issue. Having said that, I think it is fairly easy to change your, your taste preference for salt. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up eating salted pretzels and nuts. I can't eat those things anymore. If I'm going to eat nuts, I like them, you know, unsalted, like raw unsalted nuts. I'd rather have chips that don't have any salt on their coatings. I I rarely add salt to my food. I, I cook with salt. I use it as a seasoning, but I don't add it. I, I'm amazed when I see people in restaurants who before they taste the food, mm-hmm. you know, Put salt all over it.
0: No, did you notice I did that? I did.
1: <laughs> Here's
0: why I do that. I have yeah. low blood pressure.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> so great.
0: I I intentionally in, increased my sodium intake, and I actually know that if if your executive chef who came by was in here, I wouldn't have done it out of respect, because <laughs> <laughs> it's really rude when the chef is there. But it, for me, it's a, a medical thing, and I I looked at the data on renin levels, and if you get your salt down to around two grams a day. Um, your renin levels go up, which increases your heart attack risk. Right. So it, it's just like meat. It's way too much yeah. meat is bad for you, but zero I isn't good. Right. Exactly. And, and sometimes I see people who are, who are low on salt, they have low blood pressure, they have POTS, Right. or... Uh, they're they're just getting down too low, right. and then you get a bunch of people who are bloated all the time and
1: eating tons of salt, and their kidneys don't work. And, yeah, you know, you're right. Do you know about the dangers of low cholesterol? Oh, uh, to, do, do to very tell. very yeah. low cholesterol uh-huh. is strongly associated with increased rates of suicide and accidental death, and nobody knows and, why. And stroke, and stroke,
0: and acting like a jerk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it
0: turns out people who don't have oxidized cholesterol but have higher LDL yeah. are much more likely to live longer, too. Uh-huh. Uh, and and it, it is a complex subject. But when I was a, a raw vegan and I got my uh, my cholesterol down into like the 160s, I, I don't think that was good for me at all. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I'm much, I, I am a much happier, higher performing, less inflamed person when I'm around between 200 and 220. Uh-huh. Right? And my HDL is very high as a portion right. of that. Right. And it's, it, it's I'm sure, individual, but it, it can all be measured now in a way that, you know, when you went to medical school, we couldn't get the data, even on cholesterol right. and particle yeah, size. Yeah, yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we, uh, if people listen to this and they get
1: one thing out of this, it's that maybe there's some moderation in there. How about the dangers start. of being too lean? Oh, do talk about that. I would love yeah. to talk about that since yeah. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think one... one one, well, there's several dangers of being too yeah. lean. One is if you fall, you're much more likely to injure yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, it is good to have some padding. Another is that it's good to have some caloric reserves. Yep. Because, for example, uh, if people, I, it's quite common that if people get acute pneumonia or influenza mm-hmm. with a high fever, you can lose, some people can lose 20, 25 pounds in 48 hours as a result of incredibly revved up metabolic activity. If you don't have that to lose, you die. Yeah, so I think there there are a number of, and plus I think being very lean is also associated with less good mental emotional well being.
0: There's the part where your your lungs actually are much more likely to rupture. Yeah, you know, like they they get adhesions to your right. uh, to some sort of other layer of fascia. No, you're a doctor. I'm not, <laughs> but. I have a friend who's down to four point eight percent body fat, and he's you know a picture of health, ripped, lean, and like, man, you, you got to eat some carbs already. Like, right. like, like this, it looks good and you feel good, but it's not a longevity strategy. Yeah, what is the ideal for for men? I like the lowest possible healthy body fat for the average person you come across.
1: I, I don't. I'm not going to give a figure there. Okay. I don't know. Got
0: it. I. I I haven't measured it in the last month or so. I'm around between 10 and 11%. But it isn't because I'm trying to do that. It's because when I finally got my food and my sleep and everything right, I went from being the 300-pound, God knows what percentage body fat, to the 200, 210-pound mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't want to go lower. Right. Uh, and, and if I did, I, I would
1: go get some ice cream or something. And you'd be unpleasant to be around. <laughs> even, even more unpleasant, right? I th-
0: uh, thanks, Andy. <laughs> now... I've been asking people on the show lately because I'm, I'm focused on anti-aging right now I have been for 20 years, but this is my, my big book just came out on that. And I've been asking them how long are, are you, are they planning on leaving? So I'd, I'd like to know your number as The guy who's written a very readable book on healthy aging.
1: What, what's your number? Like how old, well, how I'm 77 now. Okay. And, uh, which I don't know how I got here, but that's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm closing in on 80. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I have a feeling I, you know, might want to live to my mid-80s or late 80s. I don't know that I want to live longer than that. But you're comfortable. I
0: mean, your yeah, energy, your
1: eyes are I'm sparkling, fine. your brain works. Yeah, yeah brain so works you, you feel like you're done? You did what you came here to do? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I could probably do some more stuff, but I'm quite happy with what I've done. All right, so you're like. And I don't want to, you know, I see people in their, uh, not, I have a, good friend who's 94 now and is, you know, a model of exceptional aiding but you know I hear him talk about that all, all the people he knew were dead. Yeah. And that that's not you know not a lot of fun and I've talk, I quoted a woman who was uh I think she was 102 and she said you don't want to live this long. She said look at the world now. Look at the way it's going. It's very clear where we're going and I don't want to be around for that. So, a couple so I don't know. I'm not going to make okay. a prediction. I'll wait and see. We're, we're both in town for for Joe Polish's
0: uh, Genius Network conference. And Joe's been on the show. And, and it was actually a very powerful interview he gave mm-hmm. about you know his, his path through life as an addict and and uh, just dealing with trauma and addiction. And another guy's going to be here for sure who's been on the show, Dan Sullivan, mm-hmm. who's 73. Yeah. And is absolutely convinced he's going to live to at least 156. And he talked about the same thing. And he said, you know... Uh, I decided I have to get myself a bunch of younger friends because, because all my friends are, are starting yeah. to, to pass, to, you know, to, to, to pass. And he was like, I, and, and they all want to sit around and you know, do stuff, do, do yeah. stuff like play cards. And he said, like, I need to move. Uh, and so he has this youthful vigor that's, that's very intentional. Uh, but I, I haven't, I haven't, Yet interviewed anyone out of this is now probably about seven hundred interviews um, who's in their seventies at your level of health and saying oh, maybe another five ten years and, and then I'm, I'm kind of done. I'm, I, are you one of those? I don't know. Advanced I'm Advanced people. I'm, I'm going to pass consciously. You're
1: going to sit cross-legged for three days and <laughs> upload yourself to the. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, this is, you'll like this. I, when I was writing Healthy Aging, I got, I got to know a lot of the aging research community. Yeah. And, uh, one of them, one of these researchers sent around a survey to the community of aging researchers. Uh, and one of the questions in it was, if you could live as long as you wanted and have good health, how long would you want to live? And the responses came back. There was a, Terrific difference in gender responses. Good. Men on average said they would like to live a thousand years. <laughs> women on average said they'd like to live to 120 years. And the person who did the survey said they couldn't figure out an explanation for this difference. Well, I thought about it, and it's not that hard to come up with an explanation. In our society, women are the caregivers. Now, if you're being taken <laughs> care of, why not live to a thousand years? I don't have to do dishes, I'll live a yeah, thousand right. years. <laughs> but if you're, you know, but women seem to want to live. And only until they know that their grandchildren are going to be okay, and then they want out of here. And interestingly, 120 years seems to be where the human lifespan is yeah. fixed. Yeah. Uh, so women are much more realistic there.
0: I, I like that. My My number of 180 is... Well, I know 120 is what we can do today. Yeah. And I'm counting on my friends in the anti aging research field over the next hundred years. If they can't do 50% better, like they're not very good at their jobs. Well,
1: I mean. we'll see. We'll <laughs> and, see.
0: And also, that's assuming we have enough soil. We only have 60 years of topsoil. There's that. And, yeah.
1: you know, can I say some words about matcha, my favorite oh beverage? Let's <laughs> talk about anti
0: aging stuff. We were going to talk about that before. Um, yes. Let's talk about matcha and, and in the context of aging and in the context of being an awesome Japanese Beverage that's Almost as good
1: as a good sake. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I, that's well put. Uh, my, it's my favorite alcoholic. Beverage. Oh, yours. Okay, mine Absolutely. too. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, and it's the only one I find that a good sake that you can drink unlimited quantities of and get really buzzed and not have a hangover.
0: You know, I have exactly the same experience. Yeah. That's why I like it. Plus, it tastes good. Well, okay. It's, so, sake has magic powers. All right. We're, we're there. But let's talk matcha. matcha. Because, so, you,
1: first of all, you yeah. know, I, I became interested in, I went to Japan when I was 17 okay. and lived with Japanese families. And I got, first of all, very turned on to tea in general. I love when I was growing up, uh, tea was what old people and sick people drank, and it was terrible uh, and Japan was the first time I had delicious tea, delicious green tea Sencha and I also tried matcha for the first time
0: so this was sixty years ago,
1: yeah okay. a long time ago Japan was very different and uh, I was blown away by the color of matcha I'd never seen anything of that vibrant green it's like green
0: paint yeah. Green,
1: yeah, unbelievable and then the and the complex flavor and the act of whisking it that fascinated me so I used to i i made a number of trips to Japan in the 1970s, 1980s, and I'd always bring matcha back and turn friends on to it. But, you know, nobody knew what it was. And now suddenly matcha has exploded in popularity in North America. But it bothered me that so few people had tasted really good matcha because the powdered tea is so, it's so finely powdered that it oxidizes very quickly, loses its color, becomes bitter, loses its flavor, and probably many of its healthful qualities. So I started a company, I got the URL matcha.com and created a company matcha Curry, and we import very good uh, quality matcha from Uji outside of Kyoto, which is where the best stuff comes from. And uh, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful beverage. I drink it every day. I, it's the only form of tea where you consume the whole leaf yeah. uh, contains high levels of of uh, very healthy antioxidants and uh, L-theanine, and the combination of L-theanine and caffeine produces a state of alert relaxation, which is very different from you know other forms of caffeine. So it has everything to recommend it. And uh, I, I, before I stop talking about that. I have a discount code to offer people oh, listening yeah. to let's, this co- podcast. What is it? It's Bulletproof1515. OK. And, uh, and Thank you for that. That will, that will get you a discount on wonderful so, from matcha.com, matcha.com. Matcha from Matcha. Uh, matcha.com.
0: M-A-T-C-H-A, Bulletproof15. And, and guys, we didn't plan this ahead of time. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, this is just, uh, just good stuff. Uh, so True. I just I, I gotta say, if you've never tried matcha,
1: you owe it to yourself to give it a shot. Thank you. It'll change. By the way, life. a very good thing to eat with very good matcha. Oh, what is, is a piece of dark chocolate? Oh yeah, that, that's that complements the uh, the flavor of matcha very well. I've tried a few chocolate bars that had matcha incorporated in them, but yeah, not doesn't seem to work. No, but eat, having a bite of yeah. dark chocolate and then a sip of matcha—it's something or, with the bitterness of yes, the two. Exactly. So it's 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 one of those
0: things. I would put it very high on the anti-aging scale, the antioxidant scale. All right, guys, this has been a a fantastic interview, and my mind is still blown (laughs) (laughs) that Dr. Weil is saying, ah, uh, mid-80s, that's good enough for me, but I I will respect any answer out there. Well, come back to me when I'm in my mid-80s, and we'll see. That was what I was thinking. I I think you'll say maybe a couple more years. That's what a lot of people say, as long as they're feeling good. And given how healthy you are now and given your set of knowledge, I think you can feel good for as long as you decide to. Great, I will. You guys probably know where to find Dr. Wild's work, drwild.com. Uh, read one of his books, uh, try his matcha, go to True Food Kitchen. Uh, this is one of the greats in our field who's shifted the way we think about mind, body, breathing. And it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey.